0: Content warning, this episode contains references to sexual assaults, hate crimes, violence, and murder. Please call or visit the hotlines included in the description if you need help. I murder! Hi everyone! Welcome to I Murder, the podcast where Gen Z talks true crime i'm your host jocelyn and today i have a very unique episode for you today we're covering california's string of murders committed against gay men in the mid-70s by the nicknamed serial killer the doodler it's 1974. We're in the Castro District of San Francisco, also known as the Gay Village, for its relation to Libertine attitudes and gay culture. According to Wikipedia, in the 1970s, the city's gay male population rose from 30,000 at the beginning of the decade to 100,000 at the end of it. A lot of people all over the world gravitated towards this area of San Francisco, especially because it was so welcoming to different kinds of people from different kinds of communities. It was a safe space until the doodler entered the scene. On January twenty seventh, nineteen seventy four, a body was found on the edge of San Francisco's Ocean Beach. It took a few days for authorities to identify the body, which belonged to forty five year old Gerald Cavanaugh. He had been stabbed multiple times and had defensive wounds all over his hands. And when he was found, he was fully clothed. And had all his belongings with him, including his wallet and a watch on his wrist. The only thing he was missing was his identification. Now, this is strange, you know, because you, like, expect the person who did this to seize the moment and take his belongings. Especially if his motive was related to money. You know, like, his wallet was there, his watch was there, like, why not take it? But, you know, this clearly isn't the case. Another thing to note is that there were no signs of sexual assault so that wasn't really a motive either. At this point, it just looks like this person only wanted to kill Gerald. Gerald worked at a mattress factory. He came from a pretty religious family back in Canada. As a gay man, he probably wouldn't be greeted with open arms if he were to be open about his sexuality back home, so it looks like he traveled to San Francisco as a sort of escape, you know, to live a free life as an openly gay man on june 25th 1974 a woman discovered a body in the bushes of a local park this body was identified as 20 something year old jay stevens jay was actually pretty well known in the area he was locally famous for his amazing performances as a drag queen in nearby clubs and everyone knew Jay as a bright, multi-talented, and absolutely stunning young man. Needless to say, he knew how to wow a crowd. Jay was stabbed three times in the front and back, and he was beaten so badly that his family could barely identify him. Just as the previous victim, he was stripped of his identification, so it did take a second for them to be able to identify him. Like I mentioned, Jay's body was found in a park. It doesn't seem like his body had been moved there from a different location. All the signs in the area point at the offender killing Jay in the spot and leaving him there. So this offender like barely tried to hide his body. It was fairly easy to find him and it was also pretty recent. It seemed like he had been killed probably the day or the night before um, his body was found. Another thing to note is that Jay was last seen at the cabaret club in North Beach the night before, uh, but it wasn't really reported if he had been spotted with someone else. So, you know, we can't like put those pieces of the puzzle together. The third victim was then found on June 7th, 1974. The victim, Klaus Christman, was found at the beach by Lincoln Way. He was actually from Germany and visiting San Francisco with a few friends and had only been there for about three months. Klaus was found fully clothed in a leather jacket and boots, wearing a wedding band and a moonstone on his fingers, and a makeup tube in his pockets. And these details led the police to assume that he had quote unquote homosexual propensities. And of course, he had no ID on him. Klaus's throat had been slashed in three places and he was stabbed at least 15 times in the front and back of his body. The lead investigator, Dave Toshi, who actually worked on the Zodiac Killer case, comments that this was one of the worst stabbings he had ever encountered. And that statement says a lot. I mean, like, he worked on the Zodiac killer case and lots of other horrific um, homicide, homicide cases. So I can't imagine uh, what he's seen. So to then compare that to this case and say that this had been the worst thing he had ever seen, like, that's just awful, you know? Um, I can't even imagine how gory that must have been. It did take longer for the police to identify Klaus because he was a foreigner, but when they did identify him, they found that he was married and he had two children. No one really knew why he was in San Francisco, like he could have been visiting his friends or he could have had marital problems, so maybe he went to San Francisco as an escape but what we do know is that he was hanging around prominently lgbtq areas in san francisco so you know like kind of gives us a hint um as to like what his motive was in the area but at this point investigators are able to identify a pattern in these crimes being committed in the castro district area all these victims were stabbed viciously in their fronts and backs And they were stripped of their IDs. And let me tell you, it took a while for authorities to put two and two together. The reality is, the San Francisco Police Department most likely carried homophobic attitudes during this time, which heavily biased the way they handled these cases. It definitely took them a lot longer to put their full focus on these serial killings, which is just unfair, to put it in simple terms. If this had been any other kind of case, if uh, these people weren't homosexual, then I'm sure they would have handled these cases a lot differently. Um, But unfortunately, in the 70s, there were a lot of homophobic attitudes, as there is today. I think it was probably a lot more prominent or um, open back then. So unfortunately, that had to affect this case. Now, these cases started getting public attention. It all started when Jay Stevens' murder was publicized on the newspaper. This garnered a lot of attention, negative attention at that. No one wanted to see or hear about any issues related to gay culture. So seeing this column on newspapers angered them. The Sentinel was the main newspaper to cover these killings. And it was a pretty big newspaper, so it was widely reported. Other big newspapers, like the San Francisco Chronicle, essentially ignored all these killings that were occurring in the area. And the ones that did cover these crimes, they made it seem like the victims were completely at fault for their own murders. You know, they said things like, well, if you're in this area and you're gay, you're probably gonna get killed. So it's essentially your fault, like, you're asking for it. Which is just awful, like, victim blaming should never be a thing, especially on these bigger platforms at the time, like, that's just encouraging, you know, like, hate crimes occurring. It's awful. Now, it was during this mass publicity that people started becoming more self-aware of their surroundings in the Castro district. This is when the San Francisco police start receiving numerous reports of a mysterious man going around gay bars in the area doing something strange. They reported that a handsome young man would sit near his victim of choice and sketch a portrait of them. After showing them the sketch, usually flattering them, flirting with them, he'd invite them to leave with him. Thankfully, the men that reported this to the police declined leaving with him, and because they declined, they survived. But as we know, not everyone did. This man was known as the Doodler. Now, the Doodler goes quiet for nearly an entire year, until May 12, 1975, when a man known as 32-year-old Frederick Capine was found by a hiker behind a sand dune. He was fully dressed, but every inch of his body was soaked in his own blood, and he had been stabbed multiple times in the front and the back. Because Frederick was in the military, he was almost immediately identified. The next murder was 66-year-old Swedish immigrant Harold Goldberg, He was found on June 4th, 1975 in a Lincoln Park golf course two weeks after his killing. He had slashes on his neck and multiple stabbings in the front and back. This was the last murder committed by the doodler. Now, it's important to note that these five victims aren't the only killings committed by the doodler. It was believed that the doodler committed up to 14 murders at the time, but It was probably more difficult to connect all of them together, so that's why it wasn't reported as all 14. After the last murder, the SFPD released a composite sketch of this suspect. If you guys want to have a visual of this case, you can check out our Instagram at imurderpodcast where you can find some pictures related to this episode. And we uploaded a picture of this composite sketch so you can kind of get an idea of what we're about to say. This suspect was Black, between 19 and 22 years old, 5'10 in height, and frequently wore a navy-tight-fitted cap. He was most likely in the upper middle class and was well-educated. He might have also attended some uni- one of the universities that was nearby. Another thing is that authorities never released these sketches made by the doodler, so we don't really have anything on that. But if these victims were flattered, we could assume that they were pretty good sketches. Like, I can't imagine being at the bar and a guy going up to me and showing me some stick figure and being like, Yeah, I drew you. I've been looking at you for a while and this is, this is kind of how I envision you and then being flattered by that. I can I can't imagine that happening. So, I assume I assume he was pretty talented in that aspect, you know. Um which might have enticed his victims. The press pushed on the idea that the doodler had sexual identification problems, which to be honest isn't hard to believe. In my opinion, it just looks like he might have had self-hatred issues. And if he had homosexual tendencies, these violent acts were simply a way to release his anger on people who were comfortable in their sexuality and identity and We see this with, with a lot of cases against um, people from the LGbtq community like a lot of these raging homophobic people tend to have homosexual tendencies, whether that 's just like a few thoughts that they have or it's um, their entire identity it's it's very. Um, unfortunate that the way that they have to release those frustrations is against people who are comfortable in their own skin and in their own sexuality Um, but that is a case that we see a lot of the time and personally i think that is the case with the doodler one of the reasons why it was so difficult for this case to reach any progress was because witnesses wouldn't come forward and understandably so These witnesses, who were homosexual, had a lot of pressure placed on them by society. They could have lost their jobs, their families, and friends, so of course it would be hard for them to come forward publicly as a witness to any of these crimes. The papers reported rumors on three key witnesses that could have changed the entire course of this investigation. The first surviving witness was a european diplomat who met the suspect in a restaurant in the area the suspect is invited back to the diplomat's house where he is stabbed multiple times the victim though refused to speak to the police after his attack and he just left and went back to europe the second witness was actually pretty well known uh, perhaps on TV, we know he was an an entertainer, but his name was never released for personal reasons. And the third witness was a well known politician in San Francisco who also had his identity hidden for similar reasons. And mind you, like I mentioned earlier, this is the seventy. So, of course, if you are gay and you come out um as a witness to these crimes during this time like you are gonna have a lot of backlash just because homophobia was so prevalent at the time it still is today but definitely back then um so it is of course understandable why these witnesses didn't come forward i personally completely understand um why they wouldn't Now, the SFPD did have one suspect who was found based on the accounts of surviving victims that did come forward. They had some evidence to tie him back to the murders, but there was one issue. Those survivors refused to come forward to testify in a court of law out of fear of outing themselves, so the police were forced to let their only concrete suspect go. Over time, the paper stopped talking about these cases, especially because bigger issues like AIDS were affecting the LGBTQ plus community in the 90s. Although the police refused to release any further information on this case, it continues to remain open today. And if the doodler is still alive, he would be in his 60s by now. There is still lots of hope for this case to be solved, with DNA technology progressing and cold cases being solved, there's no doubt that answers can be found for the Doodler case. If you or someone you know has any information on this case, even if it may seem irrelevant, please contact the San Francisco Police Department at 415-553-0123. Now my overall thoughts on this case is, it's just unfortunate that you know all these attacks um, occurred on such a big number of people like five seems like a small number compared to you know like all these other cases that are infamous but the reality is like all these people were people you know like they had families they had friends they had lives they had amazing attributes. I think of Jay Stevens who was an amazing performer and everyone knew him as such a bright and talented person and his life was taken away out of what, like homophobic um ideologies? Like that's that's absolutely um awful. And these things still occur today, these hate crimes against people in the LGBTQ plus community. And You know, if these cases aren't talked about, then these cases will continue to be in the darkness. And if we want any progress in our society, we need to talk about these things and we need to act on them, especially police departments who are investigating these crimes. They need to treat these cases like any other cases, just because these victims happen to be in the LGBTQ plus community doesn't mean that they don't deserve to be treated just as any other case would so it definitely is anchoring and it's frustrating um looking into these cases and seeing how the police handled it or mishandled it to say it in better terms um so it definitely is It it is sad to hear about the injustice that took place in the 70s uh with the doodler case yet that doesn't conclude the end of our episode now we have our usual segment where you guys the listeners send in your i survived stories to our email and You know, we've had so many stories sent into our email, and all of them are so fascinating. But today, we have a very special story sent in. And I actually have my co-producer, Amanda Morales, or as I like to call her, Mandy, um, reading one of the stories. So,
1: here we go, Mandy! Hey, Jocelyn. So, basically, this isn't that big deal for a story, but I thought this would be cool to share. This is from Abby to Jocelyn. So, I live in Ireland, and a lot of students go to the Gaeltacht, an Irish-speaking area, for a few weeks during the summer to improve their Irish when they're around 14 years old. I went in June 2019, and my experience was fine, other than the last night. The house we were staying in was quite far away from the school, so on the last day, we, the 10, 14-year-old girls staying at the house, got a shuttle bus to the school because it was raining. We were going to the school at 9pm because there was a it's your last day party. Our usual bus driver was busy so a different man came. It was a party so we all wore skirts and shorts and things and we noticed as we got on the bus that he was holding his phone weird and then one girl pointed out that he was filming us. He kept filming us the whole time and drove so recklessly I was thrown out of my seat. He took a detour and brought us the long way to the school and he tried to grab one of my friends on the way off the bus. We reported him to the principal and had to file a police report, and when we had to be collected to go back to the house, the bus driver who turned up was the same man from the bus earlier. Our principal sent him away, and we had to wait at the school on our own because the teachers left, until about 1 a.m. when the teachers arrived in their cars to drive us home. We got home safe and everything was fine, but we left for the next day, so I never found out what happened to that old guy. Like I said, this isn't that big of a deal, but I thought it would be cool to tell you from abby ps i love the podcast so much it's great
0: all right thanks mandy Now, this does conclude the end of our episode. If you guys want to feature your I Survived stories in um one of our future episodes, you can send in your stories to our email, imurderpodcast at gmail.com. That'll be linked in the description of this episode. So if you guys want to listen to our podcast, we're basically on every major podcast streaming site like Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, etc. etc. You can also leave us a review on apple podcast where we can kind of see what you guys enjoy what you guys suggest and so on and so forth um and it also does let our podcast be reached by different audiences so that does help of course And if you guys want to follow our instagram you can catch us um our handle is imurderpodcast and there you can have some visuals of our cases we also like to like sometimes on our instagram highlights we like to put little games like this or that or um never have i ever like things like that and that's always fun to catch while you're scrolling through your fade and i will see you guys next week with another episode but next week we're gonna have a guest so stay tuned for that And as always, you can't be a hottie if you're a dead body. Okay, bye. This episode was written, produced, edited, and hosted by Jocelyn Martinez. Music by Kaylee Fermin.